This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hong Kong has lived on the edge of empire, British and Chinese, providing services and capabilities to powerful nations, enriching its elite in the process. And the one country to systems policy has obviously dominated Hong Kong for some years and for a period reflected Beijing's need for Hong Kong to provide China with access to world markets, especially financial ones. But now is one country, two systems over because the Chinese no longer have those uses for Hong Kong. Well, Ho Fung Hong is Professor in Political Economy at Johns Hopkins University. He's written a book, City on the Edge, Hong Kong under Chinese Rule, which describes the history of Hong Kong right from the beginning, but particularly concentrates on what's happened with the protests there and the whole idea of uh, one country, two systems and where it's headed. So, uh, first of all, Professor, thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. And let's just go right back to the beginning of, of, of Hong Kong. Can you tell us what was there before the British turned up? Hong Kong has been um, sitting on the border of two tectonic plates, and it is the metaphor I use throughout the books. Uh, one is a kind of a continental power based on the landmass of the Chinese Empire. So, and the other the tectonic plate is the kind of a maritime world of commerce. Uh, so even before the British came in the, the 1840s, as my book narrative started in the, the 12th century, that uh, Hong Kong is already at the edge of the maritime world with a lot of uh, fishing activities and uh, maritime trade. Uh, it is sitting on the mouth of the Pearl Wealth Delta. So before Western colonialism, there was Arab traders and traders from South Asia and also Chinese uh, seafaring traders as well coming to and from Guangzhou or, or Canton through Hong Kong. So Hong Kong has been sitting on this kind of border between the continental land power of the Chinese Empire and the maritime world uh, since uh, at least the 12th century. One of the interesting things that came out of the book for me was that the families who were running the quite poor boating services, if you like, fishing and moving stuff around yes. in Hong Kong before the British arrived, were transformed into very important people because they provided uh, shipping services to the British as they came in. And then some of those people went on to become the big families of Hong Kong and part of the elite. Yes, exactly. The Hong Kong, the criteria is that Hong Kong was a fishing village, uh, which has some truth in it. So there's a lot of these Tonka fishermen settling along the shore of Hong Kong and actually uh, South China uh, in general uh, for hundreds if not thousands of years. And uh, they are poor. And then when the British came, many landed elite in pre-colonial Hong Kong was uh, resistant to foreign rules. Uh, and, and then the British uh, seek uh, sought collaborators among the marginalized people. And the Tonka fishermen who were marginalized by the landed population in Hong Kong 
were happy to collaborate with the British as a kind of providing transporting service, uh, shipping the, the cargoes from the big ships uh, to the shore and running warehouse. And some of them become important merchants. And later, as I uh, outlined, it, uh, became uh, some of the big tycoons uh, in colonial Hong Kong and become sympathetic to the PRC. And then after 1997, one of them, particularly the Henry Ford family, became a kingmaker uh, in the post-handover uh, political system. Yeah, so in that way, they reflect the history of Hong Kong from poor fishing village to the British period and now the Chinese being predominant. But can, can you just tell us a bit more about, I mean, everywhere they ran colonies, the British ruled through local elites. How did that happen in Hong Kong? What did that look like? Yeah, there's the urban part and the rural part. In the urban part, definitely uh, since the 19th century and particularly after the Second World War and after the communist takeover, there were a lot of Chinese mercantile elite and industrial elite uh, migrated to Hong Kong. And so the, the British uh, colonial power, like the British colonial rule in, in many other places, that they cannot uh, establish direct intervention in the society, so they rely on co-opting local elites. Of course, it includes the European elites, the big Jewish family, the big British um, merchant house of some of them, and also some Chinese elites. Uh, first of all, it is this mercantile and banking families. And later on, after the Second World War, there came the industrial elite that originated from Shanghai and, and shipping families like the Dong Qihua families, uh, one of them. So after they arrive in Hong Kong, they also start to be integrated in the in the power system under British rule, so they are the, the urban uh, elite, uh, European and Chinese, that uh, collaborate with the British uh, government to govern Hong Kong. And the British colonial government actually in Hong Kong enjoyed some autonomy from London and from time and again that we see in the post-war period that the British colonial government often uh, try to advance the interests of Hong Kong, and even at the point of arguing with or sometimes fighting with the London government, who might have some other thought about Hong Kong. So Hong Kong has been quite an autonomous city state, even in the colonial period, and based on a synergy between the British uh, officials and the British, European and the Chinese business elite. Now, one of the key moments in the history of Hong Kong was when the communists uh, took over China. And they could have taken over Hong Kong as well. But uh, one of the points your book makes is that they didn't because they chose not to. And that was because Hong Kong was providing services to the Chinese government, even through the Cultural Revolution and everything. So just spell out for us, why would China prefer at that time Hong Kong to be under British rule? Even at the height of Cold War, before Nixon visited China and in the 50s and 60s, and China really relied on Hong Kong as a window to get access to capital and supplies. For example, during the Korean War, there was an international embargo on the PRC, and then Hong Kong became a kind of transshipment center in which a lot of smuggling going on that the tanker family, the Henry Falk that I mentioned before, that they basically thrive in the 1950s, early 1950s, by shipping strategic supplies, including medical supplies, some military hardware, smuggling into PRC to defy the embargo. So it is this kind of shipment of supply that uh, PRC desperately leads through Hong Kong and also capital because cut off from the world economy and China still lead to have hard currency to purchase capital goods and machines from the world. And it's all through Hong Kong. And Hong Kong has been the only source of foreign currency for the PRC at the height of the Cold War, as many Chinese migrants in Hong Kong send remittance back home and 
also the PLC uh, maintain the the banks and merchant business companies in Hong Kong to do business. Uh, also, they sell actually in the early 1960s. China and uh, South China, uh, Guangdong province start to sell drinking fresh water to Hong Kong, uh, and it is one very important source of foreign currency for China. That China in turn used to purchase uh, capital goods and all other kind of uh, strategic supplies via Hong Kong. So Hong Kong has been very important, provide the only window that China can have access to the world under the international embargo. Uh, even after Nixon visit China, that China also continued to rely on Hong Kong as a kind of middleman or entry port interface with the with the world. Yeah, I mean, I'd never realized that Hong Kong had separate membership of the World Trade Organization. I mean, that illustrates the point perfectly. You know, quite independent of China, so clearly goods and services could move through Hong Kong in a way that they couldn't go direct to China. Yes, even after 1997, even after China uh, entered the WTO, that the fact that Hong Kong is an independent and separate member so in the WTO from the PRC under different conditions and terms is very important. Finance is the most important, uh, even to today, because China for economic and political security reasons, never interested in opening up its financial system. So foreign banks cannot actually directly and fully do business uh, in China, but Chinese company and Chinese wealthy people still to need to have access to global finance. So the solution is to maintain a window in Hong Kong. So the foreign banks, international banks who want to do business with Chinese companies and Chinese wealthy people, while they cannot do it uh, directly and fully in mainland China, can do it directly directly and fully in Hong Kong. So Beijing actually through Hong Kong had the best of both worlds. First, that they can show off their financial system from foreign uh, participation, but at the same time, they can enjoy access to international finance through Hong Kong. Yes, it reminded me of the situation of Switzerland in the Second World War, when Nazi Germany allowed the Swiss to remain an independent country, a neutral country, uh, but clearly could have overrun Switzerland, but didn't, uh, because the, the Swiss banking services were useful to Nazi Germany. Yes, indeed. It's very much a similar dynamics. So uh, then take us forward to more recent times when Hong Kong was providing other services to the Chinese leadership. For instance, allowing senior politicians in China to get residency in Hong Kong for their children and allowing the, the children to move more easily internationally. Indeed, if you are in China, you are elite, you are an, a leader. If you have a lot of money, that is it relatively or very difficult to move your wealth out of China without being noticed by the government and, and even not allowed it in many cases is very difficult. So what they do is that they establish or they, themselves or their families, a close family, wife or children, to establish residency in Hong Kong and then buy property in Hong Kong because once uh, money moved from mainland China to Hong Kong, you can move the money from Hong Kong to anywhere else in the world uh, freely and without uh, being noticed by Beijing, by the authorities. So a lot of wealthy elite would use Hong Kong as a kind of offshore station uh, for them to, to store their wealth. It is why Hong Kong, not only the banking, insurance and financial sector, but even like the art gallery auctions and, and red wine auction house, they are very, very prosperous because of this kind of elite of the Chinese elite to, to, to store their wealth in Hong Kong. So has any of this changed? I mean, that's the interesting thing. You've got this whole period where, you know, Hong Kong was allowed to exist in the way it did because uh, it, was, it, it basically served Beijing's purpose. Has that now changed? Does the Chinese Communist Party and the senior politicians there have less need of Hong Kong than they used to? 
Actually, it is it is a very interesting question, and it is not yet a settled issue because the existence of Hong Kong, on the one hand, serve Beijing Chinese、uh, national development and serve the financial lead of the Chinese elite very much, but at the same time, it constitutes a threat. On the one hand, that、uh, the lead that Hong Kong serve cannot be easily replaced by any financial center in mainland China, Shanghai or Shenzhen. They keep talking about. Developing Shanghai and Shenzhen as a free trade zone that can replace and outcompete Hong Kong, but they talk about it for twenty years and、uh, and nothing happened in all these other financial centers because the, they are not offshore. They don't like Shanghai or Shenzhen. They didn't have a separate currency which is freely convertible with the U.S. dollar. They don't have totally porous financial border with the world economy, and many other institutional、uh, framework like the court in common law tradition and things like that, and it didn't exist. So even they try. To start a Shanghai free trade zone, but the international banks are not very interested in moving there, and they start tried in Shanghai and Shenzhen to do the same thing to establish a free trade zone to attract business from Hong Kong to there, and 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 international business and even Chinese、uh, Chinese financial、uh, firms are not interested in 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 doing、uh, business in place of Hong Kong. So、uh, Hong Kong is、uh, in irreplaceable in its、uh, status as an offshore financial center. So it、uh, it has a very unique role. But at the same time, it constitutes a threat to China because、uh, the analogy between Hong Kong and Switzerland、uh, under the influence of Nazi Germany is very well. Except that Switzerland was a sovereign country, and Nazi Germany didn't need to worry about Switzerland、uh, influencing the politics and threatening the regime in in Nazi Germany. But Hong Kong is a nominally part of China and a free society within the PRC sovereignty constitutes a threat. To mainland China and the communist regime, with all these kind of June Fourth candlelight vigils and all these protests, and 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 they really worry that、uh, the freedom in Hong Kong will、uh, spill over to mainland China. So it is a dilemma. On the one hand, they have this lead to maintain a free society and offshore financial center in Hong Kong, but at the same time, this freedom create a space for possible challenge to the CCP rule. And so, what happened in 2019,、uh, and what is unique about the 2019 protests in comparison? To, for example, the 2014 protests, is that、uh, there's evidence that I show in my book that at least there's elite sympathy to the protesters、uh, among the Hong Kong local financial elite and even some mainland Chinese elite in Hong Kong because the. Impetus that gave rise to the protest is to protest against this extradition bill that can、uh, allow the Chinese security people to to arrest、uh, and transfer the people in Hong Kong to mainland China to be tried in the mainland Chinese court system. So it、uh, scare many rich people,、uh, including Chinese rich people in Hong Kong. So there's a lot of indication that even the elites are、uh, are starting to be at least sympathetic to the to the rebels and if not outright、uh, rebellious. So it is why. Um, the Chinese government need to crack down in full force and even revamp the political system to,、uh, through this national security law totally because they worry about this kind of、uh, rebellion in Hong Kong is no longer restricted to the lower and middle class but also、uh, spreading to the elites.、Uh, so if there's a kind of alliance of elite. And the popular classes uh, uh, formed, and and it will really be kind of、uh, from 
perspective of Beijing, a kind of revolution that the local government of Hong Kong will be taken over by somebody not totally controllable by Beijing. So it's why they crack down hard. And after they crack down hard, they're still in two minds about how far to go. That under national security law, of course, the civil society is already eradicated mostly, that many organizations, student organizations, NGOs are already outlawed or people are arrested or escaped it. But at the same time, they don't know how far to crack down on the financial elite. There's uh, two examples that uh, it is uh, it is very uh, happened very recently that I don't have the opportunity to include in the book, but it is very important um, to show the fact that Hong Kong, uh, the conflict over Hong Kong is not over. One is... Tell you what, we'll yeah. get onto that in a moment, and I'd be interested to hear about sure. those two cases. But just before then, I think it would help. Yeah. First of all, just to spell out what you said there about the issue on which the student protesters and the elite may have yeah. uh, had common cause was this idea that you could commit a crime in Hong Kong and be extradited to be or moved to be tried in yes. China itself. And that became the key test, really, of one country, two systems. And before we got onto the protests yes. and this latest news you've got for us, I just thought it'd be useful to spell out one country, two systems, because... One of the points you're making, which is interesting, is that the model had been used and actually it had failed in Tibet and arguably in Taiwan. So can you tell us, first of all, about the Chinese idea of one country, two systems in Tibet? Yeah, in the 1950s, that China established a 17-point agreement with the Dalai Lama government, according to the agreement that the Tibetan elite, the Dalai Lama government, uh, recognized the PRC sovereignty over Tibet. In exchange, the Dalai Lama government can continue to govern Tibet and take care of all internal affairs, and the PRC only take care of external affairs, foreign affairs, and even the Dalai Lama government can maintain their own very minimal military establishment of the Tibetan government in, in NASA. So it is exactly a one-country, two-system with Without being called one country to a system. But of course, that Tibet at the time, a lot like Hong Kong, it didn't play a kind of a role as an offshore financial center. The reason why the PRC established a one country, two system with the Dalai Lama government is simply to buy time because uh, in the Tibetan plateau, that without kind of a highway and reasonable tra- transportation network linking the mainland China with Tibet, so it is very difficult to send all the military, the PLA, to govern. So they need to buy time to build the highway uh, connecting the Lhasa to mainland China. And after that is done, that they uh, really continue to expand the direct control of Tibet and in, invoke a rebellion in 1959. And then uh, the rest is history, that uh, there's a full-scale direct control and the Dalai Lama free and uh, Tibet turned from one country, two system to one country, one system after the, the 1959 uprising. And Deng Xiaoping in early 1980s even recurrently talk about uh, 1950s Tibet is a kind of quite successful experiment of one country, two system, and he blamed Dalai Lama for its failure. Right. So that, that you're quite clear in that case that it was a cynical measure by the or tactic uh, by the Beijing leadership to buy time one country, two systems before they could impose one country, one system. So now take us through your interpretation of the use of the one country, two system idea in relation to Taiwan. Yes. In Taiwan, of course, it's very different that Taiwan uh, has a full uh, support by the U.S. under the Taiwan Relation Act because it uh, has some kind of a power of dependence about how PRC and U.S. established diplomatic relations uh, before 1979 when PRC and, and, and the U.S. established diplomatic relations. U.S. has a formal 
diplomatic relation with the Republic of China in Taiwan. So when they the U.S. Uh, shift the recognition to the PRC in 1979 that it uh, also institute a Taiwan Relation Act that show U.S. continuous uh, commitment to defend Taiwan. So Taiwan has this uh, kind of U.S. protection and also U.S. Uh, see Taiwan is a very important strategic place. So Taiwan were offered one country to system actually uh, from the 1960s that Mao Zedong and Joe and I already uh, suggest this kind of one country, two system arrangement to Taiwan and it's today. Uh, but they are not interested. Uh, they don't need to entertain it because they have the, the, the continuous backing of the U.S. And also it is more difficult now because Taiwan is a fully democratic society. They have their full election of their legislature and their presidents and the free press and, and the very vibrant democracy. So it's not like Hong Kong is a liberal society, but it's not a fully democratic society before the handover. So uh, from a Taiwan perspective, it is much more difficult for the people in Taiwan to to accept this kind of a one country, two system uh, arrangement. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right, but it's easier in Hong Kong. Now, is it your view that one country, two systems is now over? You know, that the Chinese have done enough to effectively mean they've got complete control of Hong Kong, or is it still an open question? Yes, yes, that did come back to this uh, two example uh, in uh, in recent uh, months is that uh, and on one wing of the CCP of course uh, see that this one country and they write about it and they talk about it that I cite in my book that uh, explicitly that one country two system is just to buy times and then now just like in Tibet now the time is ripe they can establish full control of, of Hong Kong which is true in the sense that they have already established full control of Hong Kong now after eradicating all these liberal newspaper and opposition groups and parties and, and, and in terms of civil society and politics that they have established full control but what they are not sure yet is about uh, how far to go to put Hong Kong's status as an offshore financial center in jeopardy that after the national security law that uh, Beijing have been talking about applying the anti-foreign sanction laws that is already effective in mainland China to Hong Kong last year, early last year. And if it was uh, applied to Hong Kong, it has dire consequence to the financial sector because under the anti-foreign sanction laws, financial institutions and any companies in Hong Kong cannot follow sanctions established by US or UK or other foreign government, if they follow those sanctions uh, against officials and, and individuals or companies, they will be violating Chinese law. So any financial firms, banks in Hong Kong will be forced to choose between abiding by US, UK law or law in anywhere else in the world and Chinese law. So they will be in a very difficult position. They are either violating Chinese law or US-UK law when it comes to this sanction issue. So if they really apply that anti-foreign sanction law in Hong Kong, it will be forcing a lot of banks actually to leave Hong Kong that they find it is impossible to to abide by the law of both sides at the same time. But then there's a lobby by banking sector in Hong Kong, including Chinese bank reportedly uh, in Hong Kong, 
saying that it will destroy Hong Kong offshore financial center status. It will be a huge impact on on the business environment in Hong Kong. In the end, that uh, at the last minute, in last summer, that uh, Beijing declared that they, they are going to suspend and continue the study whether to or how to apply this anti-foreign sanction law in Hong Kong so that it create a space for financial institution to actually to continue to abide by US and Europe and UK to, uh, sanction against Chinese official without violating Chinese law. So it's one example that they're still cautious about how far to go to destroy Hong Kong uniqueness uh, to the point of uh, jeopardizing Hong Kong status as an offshore financial center. And another example is, of course, the COVID control measure. Early, they are talking about Hong Kong has to follow this strict COVID po- zero COVID policy to have a universal lockdown and to have universal testing, like what Shanghai is undergoing now. But again, that uh, these uh, bond firms and banks and, and all these uh, people are very anxious about, about this kind of a lockdown impact on the financial center. In the end, they didn't, they didn't do it. So Hong Kong literally escaped the fate of Shanghai. And on the other hand, that they are loosening border control regarding foreign uh, visitors and things like that. So the, this kind of a concern about Hong Kong financial centrality is still in the mind of the Chinese leaders so much so that they, they are not uh, ready to go full force to make Hong Kong exactly doing the same thing as, for example, in terms of COVID policy that Shanghai did. So it is it showed that it's still not yet to settle the issue about uh, how far to crack down on Hong Kong and to destroy Hong Kong offshore financial centers uh, status. Right. I wonder if we could just put this in the context of China's imperial policy, if you like. One of the striking sentences in your book is that China is an empire trying to be a nation state. And I think if I understood you correctly, the history of Chinese imperialism within its own what is now within what is now China's borders is that compared to some imperial systems that allow a lot of leeway, to local yeah. cultures, local rulers, and some sort of local yeah. autonomy. Uh, China has never done it yeah. that way. It, it, it wants yeah. control, right? So this yeah. situation that Hong Kong is in now is an anomaly within the Chinese tradition. Is that right? First, that China is an empire pretending to be a nation state. It's, I, I said somebody else who, who talked about it, and it is quite uh, obvious now. And some people will say, that, oh, it might not be right to call Chinese uh, an empire or call about Chinese imperialism. But ironically, that uh, many Chinese official scholars and prominent intellectuals within the establishment of the PRC they do talk about China as an empire, as a kind of a, they're proud of it, actually, that they use the word empire in a positive way. They they talk about the fact that we have the Roman Empire, we have the British Empire, we have the American Empire. Now it is trying to turn to become an empire. So they a lot strive from acknowledging that China has an imperial is a in imperial power and China has this imperial tradition as I talk about in the book that and the Chinese leader and official uh, textbooks and explicitly talk about it is that in the Qing Empire in the 18th century that they incorporate all these areas with uh, Lon Han and Lon uh, ethnic minority and so in the beginning that they allow them local autonomy the local native chieftain can exercise local control but when the time came through immigration of Han, Han migrant in this area and and also the 
when the time became mature, that they just established uh, direct rule and then uh, get rid got rid of the uh, of the local chieftain and the local elite, and then assimilate the area, and then they move on to another uh, far 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 farther away uh, area. So what China do is 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 like that. That uh, Hong Kong is the first stop that they incorporate a kind of a culturally, politically, and socially framed uh, different uh, entity from mainland China, and then they assimilate it and then establish direct rule. After that, they move on to somewhere else, and definitely then Taiwan is the next target. And and some uh, ultra nationalist uh, writer in 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 China is already. Writing and the people take it as a joke, but I I, I always think that uh, we need to take it more seriously than than people uh, did. As that to talk about this kind of a uh, next ten fifty years, how China can revive its glory. There's some ultra leftist writers talking about Hong Kong, Taiwan, and then Okinawa even that uh, because the Okinawa is the old Ruku kingdom was a kind of a triple state of the Chinese Empire before it was incorporated by Japan. So they are already talking about this kind of. Con- Continuous expansion in this overseas uh, entity, so that definitely is a kind of imperial ambition there, and is tied to the revival, also called great revival of the of the of the Chinese civilization. Well, you've you know you've very clearly described you know some Hong Kong history and this very difficult relationship with China in you know the last few years, let's say particularly twenty nineteen. Hong Kong saw these massive protests, which is what sparked the you know the end of one country two systems can you explain those protests to us in terms of the relationship with china which i guess is pretty obvious you know that hong kong was asking for liberties they, they, they to, to preserve liberties they felt they had but also the parallels with south korea and taiwan where there are also protests what I'm really asking is, were the Hong Kong protests at all like the ones in South Korea and Taiwan? The Hong Kong protest is very much inspired by Taiwan because Taiwan faced the same great power, which is the PRC, that tried to incorporate uh, the society uh, and uh, even eradicated the local democracy. Uh, so the concern of many Taiwan protesters, even though there's driven a lot of internal uh, issues in Taiwan, but it's always linked to this kind of a who are the collaborator of the PRC who try to seize control of Taiwan and who are not. So Hong Kong uh, protest is very much inspired and connected to the Taiwan protests. Uh, but of course, Hong Kong protest has this uh, specific agenda. Uh, the 2019 protests is the most confrontational and uh, widespread uh, mobilization in Hong Kong history. And, and 2014 is another one. But the protest the target is very different. In 2014, the protest is triggered by the failed promise of full democracy in Hong Kong because uh, the, the one of the, the key elements that PRC or Beijing tried to convince the international community and, and the British government and also Hong Kong people uh, to accept uh, sovereignty uh, handover to China is that uh, Beijing promised in the end that the Hong Kong local government will be We'll, we'll, we'll have universal suffrage. We have uh, elections uh, to elect. Hong Kong people will elect their own leaders and their own legislators. So uh, it was uh, the promise was in the Sino-British Joint Declaration, uh, 1984, and it was in the Basic Law, that is the mini constitution uh, endorsed by the Chinese government to, to govern Hong Kong after 1997. So people expecting this kind of a universal suffrage uh, after 1997, and many of the protests is to ask for a 
are speedier and the implementation of this of a genuine universal suffrage. So the trigger of the protest in 2014 is that Beijing said that, yeah, you have universal suffrage. Uh, you can vote who is your uh, chief executive, but uh, we are going to control the candidates. Uh, we are going to pick the candidates for you to vote for. So then many people think that it is uh, not really a genuine universal suffrage. It's just like an Iranian kind of election uh, or the village election in China that the party pick the candidates and then people can vote which party candidates they can vote sometimes only one candidate. So people protest in 2014 to ask for genuine universal suffrage. So it is asking for the fulfillment of a promise that they failed to de- deliver. Uh, so it's 2014. And 2019 target is a kind of a, a more defensive protest because, uh, as I said, it was triggered by this extradition bill that allowed Hong Kong police and Chinese security forces to actually arrest people in Hong Kong and transfer them to Chinese court to the PRC. So it is a kind of um, the, um, uh, encroachment into existing uh, autonomy and liberty uh, of Hong Kong people. And because before this extradition bill, there's all, a lot of uh, reports about this kind of a cross-border kidnapping of Chinese tycoons uh, and booksellers. Um, so, but they do it, uh, or reportedly they did it uh, in a kind of more kind of a under-the-radar secretive way. But after the extradition bill, people will expect that uh, they can all do it uh, out in the open and more will be happening. So actually that this kind of a protest is a kind of a defending some existing uh, liberty and even the legal protection under the common law in the Hong Kong court system. And so it is very different from the 2014. In the 2014, uh, the Democrat, the opposition, the grassroots and the middle class are asking for full democracy, but the business elite are a lot uh, impressed. Uh, they are actually that coming out to denounce the protester and they are firmly in alliance with the Beijing in in denouncing the protests uh, in 2014. But in 2019, the business elite actually were the first uh, to come out to the voice their concern and even opposition to this extradition bill because uh, they lead because there's a lot of case in which the Hong Kong business elite getting into trouble with their business partner or local government in China they they, they get uh, warned or detained and and they escape and get back to Hong Kong but if this extradition bill became a reality they can arrest them and transfer them to mainland China so the business elite are, are threatened and 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 they're anxious so they are establishing an alliance kind of or in, at least in a sympathetic relation uh, with the protesters so it's why the protest in 2019 is so huge because uh, many people think that it is an existential crisis of uh, of Hong Kong yeah so if I understand you correctly the yeah there's a if you if you take South Korea for example the students were basically asking for democratic reform there on the streets for many years. And, yeah, that was not so dissimilar to 2014 in Hong Kong. But yes, uh, but yes. 2019 was you know, more of a specific issue in relation to Chinese power. It is taking away a fundamental freedom of Hong Kong yeah. and the rule of law of Hong Kong that Hong Kong people enjoyed it since the colonial times, actually in the 1970s and 1980s, particularly after the colonial reform in the 1970s. And... Hong Kong is not a democratic entity, but it was a free society. And people are seeing that being threatened fundamentally by the extradition bill in 2019. Now, one, one of the most fascinating things about Hong Kong is, you know, it's almost an experiment in political culture and how long it takes to form a political culture, which is all sort of encompassed by the question, to what extent does Hong Kong have a genuinely separate identity and culture to the rest of China? 
It is a very interesting question because uh, there have been uh, a lot of discussion and scholarly research on Hong Kong cultural identities, and many people see the rise of the Cantonese pop song in the 1970s as one key indicator of this uh, Hong Kong separate identity and the use of vernacular language because before the 1970s, uh, most of the pop song is English or Mandarin Chinese. and uh, So there's a lot of talk about this cultural identity, but this kind of a cultural identity is just cultural identity. In terms of political identity, Many Hong Kong people, including the opposition, that they are Chinese nationalists. Uh, so it is why the democratic movement in the 80s and 90s that they have been supporting Hong Kong returning to China and then they are uh, seeing Hong Kong democratic movement as just an appendix or a part of the Chinese democratic movement and the ultimate goal is not only autonomy and democracy of Hong Kong but the democracy of the whole China. So they are Chinese nationalists. What happened is that after the, the handover, a new generation grow up which is different from the older generation who has a lot of connection with uh, mainland China in terms of their family ties, in terms of uh, uh, the resentment against uh, British colonial rule, as you will. But the new generation grew up in a, in a time when they don't have this kind of uh, resentment against the British colonialism. And, 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 and comparatively speaking, they feel British the late colonial period, uh, Hong Kong, to see more freedom than, 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 than after 1997, when a lot of kind of a control and censorship, self-censorship of the media start to expand. Uh, so they start, uh, this new generation start to uh, develop uh, Hong Kong as a separate political identity. That uh, uh, And then a lot of this kind of a research and survey opinion pool us about people identification show that after the Beijing Olympics, particularly in 2008, that the Hong Kong identity become uh, stronger and stronger and Chinese identity become weaker and weaker. And particularly among the young people, they really see Hong Kong as a as a very, very separate, uh, not only a cultural entity, but also even a political community, uh, so that uh, they start to think that Hong Kong future, Hong Kong political system should be determined by referendum, local referendum. And, and so it is uh, the support of self-determination of Hong Kong about Hong Kong future after the one country, two system set to expire in 2047. So it's a very different landscape. And, and this kind of identity, a political identity of Hong Kong once established, it is very difficult to, to, to get rid of from a Beijing perspective, even through draconian repression. Well, it's very interesting to hear your account of Hong Kong, but just thinking in terms of its importance to the world, I guess you know, the, 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 what happens is important to the people of Hong Kong, it's important to Beijing. But when it comes to the rest of the world, it's really Taiwan that matters, isn't it? Not now, it's not Hong Kong, really. Not, not only Taiwan, I would say even further afield, because uh, one of the key official scholars, which is the, the smartest, most sophisticated establishment scholar now, the head of social science at Peking University that Jiang Zikong I keep citing, it's very interesting that he explicitly talked about uh, in his book that Hong Kong is important to Beijing in the sense that because the British left a lot of the Western institutions in Hong Kong, political, legal, social institutions in Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is kind of a laboratory for Beijing to learn how to uh, dismantle, erode, and take control of these institutions and, and establish rule. So it is kind of a first stop for Beijing to learn to how to project its influence outside of mainland China. And uh, after 
it learned lesson about how to manipulate election, about infiltrate medias and the society and things that, that they can apply the thing that they learn in Hong Kong to other liberal society. Taiwan is definitely one of it. And some people already uh, noticed that uh, the Chinese strategies uh, in establishing influence among overseas Chinese community in New Zealand, Australia, even UK, that it has some resemblance in, in what they have been doing in Hong Kong, even during under uh, British colonial rule. In my book, I talk about uh, a lot of instances in which how the CCP is already established the ground of, of United Front's um, influence and, and, and uh, with elite and grassroots people and NGOs in Hong Kong getting ready for the final takeover. So these kind of tactics they have been learning that uh, can be seen uh, that they have been applying to other uh, offshore society, even sovereign society in like uh, uh, in Singapore, in New Zealand, in, 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 in Australia, we see from the news that time and again. And it's very similar to what uh, we experience in Hong Kong before the handover. Well, that really does suggest there is a, a broader relevance, and uh, I'm sure we'll all be able to understand what's going on, you know, a lot better for having uh, listened to you. So, thank you very much, Professor. Thank you very much.